1973, during the High Holy Days of Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday, several Arab countries developed a coalition to attack Israel. Once again, it was during Israel's High Holy Days. Israel did not expect the attack. They were caught totally off guard, totally by surprise, and defeat seemed imminent. They were pushed back to their hills. They thought that surrender was going to be necessary. But a few of the leaders of Israel that had studied Scripture, a few of the leaders said, just wait. Anyone who acts in rebellion against God, any coalition that comes together in rebellion against God, will fall. So they waited patiently. And that exact thing happened. The Arab countries started fighting amongst themselves. There was infighting. They began to dissolve the coalition, and Israel ended up winning the war in 1973 during Yom Kippur. An amazing testimony to how the Word of God and the principles that God used to create the world works out. Today, we can apply the same truth. There are coalitions of of organizations that are in rebellion against God that come around and are united by one thing and one thing only. Their rebellion against God and their rebellion against God's created order. Now, when I use the term God's created order, it's, it's a term used to describe how God ordered the world in His creation. So God, during creation, used principles to govern this world. Those principles, if violated, produce death, produce destruction. I think what happened in China is actually an excellent example. For decades, China issued a one-child policy and forced abortion was mandatory. And therefore, because they viewed male as more important than female, if you were pregnant with a girl, you killed that girl because you wanted a boy child who was more valuable. That is in direct violation of God's created order. That is in direct violation of the principles God used to create this world. He said, be fruitful and multiply. He has high value on both male and female. And because China violated that creation order for decades, China is up against the wall now. In fact, if you study anything or know anything at all about China, they have reversed the policy. In fact, they are encouraging and giving incentives to families to have children because what they're, issuing, or they're up against is a, uh, a, a pop, not a population bomb, but kind of a population bomb. What's happening is they're aging out. They're buying more adult diapers than children diapers. And because they have indoctrinated their country for so long to not have kids, and because there are so few females, they can't catch their population up. And what they're entering in is, looks like devastation within the next few decades. A massive die-off in China within a few decades. Anytime we violate God's creation order, 
There is destruction. And so we see these different coalitions forming around us in our culture today that have the only thing that is uniting them is their rebellion against God. And sometimes we start to fear, sometimes we start to see anxiety, because some of these coalitions are very loud. They want to to rebel against God, and they want to shut down the church that represents God, and they're very loud about it. They can sometimes be obnoxious about it. And because they're so loud, and we know that they, they absolutely despise the church, sometimes we begin to fear and we begin to have anxiety. But I think we can look back to the war of 1973, the Yom Kippur War in Israel, and we can remind ourselves that any coalition that is united in their rebellion against God will eventually fail. Now, it might not fail tomorrow. It might not be next year. But they will fail. And that's what we're going to study today as we continue our series, Hopeful, a study through Revelation. We're up to Revelation 17. Revelation 17 is the beginning of a new vision. So we've been learning that there are four visions throughout the book of Revelation. The first vision is a letter he sends off to seven churches. God commands John to send seven letters to seven churches. The second vision, he's taken up into the throne room, and he's given a vision of how the end times will will unfold. We finish that vision with the completion of God's wrath and the seven bowls, which are the completion of God's wrath, last week. If you're wondering, like, what do you mean seven bowls of God's wrath? Well, go listen to last week's sermon. This week we begin the new vision. So chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgments of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth or on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, that was and is not. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And then the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. 
but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the, prost- where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the be- or sorry, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this pur- his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. All right, there's a lot going on here. Some people are like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Uh, I think it will make a lot of sense, and we can make a lot of sense out of this. So let's not get overwhelmed by what seems to be a little crazy, and let's jump in. So this is the beginning of the third vision that John has in the book of Revelation. The third vision is outlined, I kind of outline it as chapter 17 is a description and a reason for the judgment that falls on Babylon. Chapter 18 is a funeral dirge that he sings about Babylon. Chapter 20 is the 1,000 year reign and final judgment. So that's kind of, oh sorry, I skipped chapter 19. Chapter 19 is also a, is a victory celebration, all right? So that's how I kind of outline it. It's pretty simple, it's pretty basic, let's dive in here. So uh, he starts off with, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls. So this ties in really well with last week, it ties in really well with the second vision. We see that the second vision and the third vision are very closely related. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to draw a little bit more upon the sixth and seventh bulls. So we'll see him drawing upon the sixth and seventh bulls of judgment, and then he's going to go beyond that, that second vision. So the second vision ends at the seventh bowl. We're going to continue on past that seventh bowl in the third vision. All right, but we see that it is very closely related. Some people would even think that, and some people do think, I should say, think that this is part of the interlude. So if you remember throughout the second vision, there were, where there were places that we called an interlude, where he stopped the narrative that was moving us forward to give us a better description of what was going on. So you saw chapters 11, 12, 13, those were part of, an, of the interlude. And then we jumped back into the narrative. Some people think that's what's going on here because it is so closely related, but I, uh, we'll get to a point of why I think this is a totally different vision. All right, so, but we can see that this is very closely related to the second vision. So this, the angel, one of the angels with seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now, we've talked quite a bit about uh, Babylon the Great. Later on, we'll learn that the great prostitute is named Babylon the Great. Throughout the book of Revelation, Babylon the Great represents the world's system. The world system that is in rebellion against God. So we see all the way back in Daniel Babylon the Great is a title for the world system. It's going to continue on. And it actually, at this point, at this point, during the time of John, represents Rome, but Rome also represents Babylon the Great. But they couldn't just come out and say Babylon the Great. Or sorry, they couldn't just come out and say Rome. Because if they come out and say Rome, 
then the persecution only gets more difficult. So instead of just saying Rome, they say Babylon the Great. But both Babylon the Great and Rome, and really any great city that has built their greatness by rebelling against God, is represented by the world, or is a representation of the world system, and therefore is a part of Rome, is a part of Babylon the Great. So you can think in your mind right now of great cities, big cities that are living in luxury and in rebellion against God. You could call those cities Babylon the Great as well. There are several of them out there right now that I know you're thinking of. So, the great prostitute represents... Sorry, I was kind of looking around to see how many little kids we have in here right now. Uh, It represents Babylon the Great, but it's also a title for Babylon the Great, and it's a title specifically because of their rebellion and unfaithfulness to God. Throughout the Old Testament, prostitution or harlotry was used as a term towards Israel anytime Israel was unfaithful to God. So there were times when, uh, when Israel was unfaithful to God. They had made a covenant with God. They told God they were going to be faithful to Him, that they would only worship Him, and then sooner or later they would begin pagan worship. They would begin idolatry. They would be unfaithful to God. And so what does God do? He calls them harlots. He said, you've been playing the harlot. You've been playing the role of the prostitute. Not only have you been unfaithful to God, but you've been dragging other people along with you. You've been telling other people to be unfaithful to God. So that's why you're a prostitute. In fact, this is such a clear picture that there's an entire minor prophet, an entire book written about this theme. It's the book of Hosea. In Hosea, it starts off with Hosea. And he gives him, you know, Hosea writes his title and he says, God told me, Hosea, go marry a prostitute. That's a difficult assignment. I don't think anyone here would say, yeah, sign me up for that assignment, God. I want to marry someone that is a prostitute. And then he takes it one step further. He says, not only are you going to marry a prostitute, but you're going to marry a prostitute who remains unfaithful to you. I mean, it's one thing to say, man, uh, my wife might have had a, a, a different background. She might have done something else, but she's repentful. She's going to remain faithful to me now. God has made us pure. By the way, this is a side note. And I think it's a a note of encouragement for anyone that has fallen into sexual immorality. Your purity is not based upon your sexual morality. Your purity is based on Christ. So if you've ever lived a sexually immoral life, you don't have to well about being sexually impure. Christ has made you pure. There is hope in Christ. And because He has made you pure, He calls you to sexual morality not sexual immorality. It's an important concept for us to grasp. But all that to say, he calls Hosea and he tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute, and if that weren't bad enough, this prostitute isn't going to leave her lifestyle. She's going to remain unfaithful to you. And right now, everybody's saying, no way, don't sign me up for that. And he goes on in this whole picture And eventually, she runs away. And she lives a life of prostitution. And God says to Hosea, go buy her back. 
and wait for a time and renew your covenant with her. And then he says, this is the picture of my relationship with Israel. She is unfaithful to God. She has prostituted herself out to all these other gods. They, they have engaged in idolatry. And yet God was willing to buy her back. And he was willing to buy her back with his own blood. And not only does it describe Israel, but we can also apply that to our life. Any time you put something above God, you have committed idolatry. Anytime you have submitted your control, the control of your life to anything other than God, anytime you say, God, I don't want to follow you, I want to follow this desire of my heart, you have committed idolatry and you have prostituted yourself out. But God, with a love like Hosea had, God will not let you stay there. And he has bought you back with his own blood. Because of your rebellion, because of your idolatry, because of your harlotry, we all deserve eternal death. Eternal separation from God. And yet, because he loves us with such a great love, he paid the price. He took on God's wrath. Those seven bowls of wrath that we talked about last week, he took that upon himself on the cross so that you wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God. You wouldn't have to experience eternal death. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Christ. And you are no longer considered sexually immoral. You are no longer considered a harlot. But you are considered pure. You are considered righteous. You are considered holy. And that is so important for us to understand so, all that to say, we see that why he calls Babylon the Great the prostitute. Because Babylon the Great is very good at seducing us away and having us play the prostitute with her. So, Babylon the Great is a prostitute and she's good at seduction. She has seduction techniques. Uh, I think the, the best picture that we can find for her seduction techniques are all the way back in Genesis and the Tower of Babel. Now, most of us remember the story of the Tower of Babel, and we get kind of confused at the Tower of Babel. What's really important when we look at the Tower of Babel is it says they built themselves a city and a tower. Both the city and the tower are important. We like to focus in on the tower, and I'll just explain that first. The tower represents religious philosophy. And the whole idea behind the tower is that they didn't need God to be moral. They didn't need God to submit themselves to. They could make their own religious system. They could make their own religious or moral, they could be their own moral authority. They didn't need God. We see that all over the place today, right? We don't need to necessarily build a tower to have the Tower of Babel. We think we can throw off the shackles of God's morality and we can create our own morality. That's part of the seduction technique of the, great, of the prostitute. And she wants to tell you, hey, you don't have to submit your desires to God. You can give in to all of your desires. Whatever desire you want, go after it. Pursue it. 
You don't need God's moral authority. You can be a moral authority to yourself. And the problem with that is we end up in the same situation as China, right? In our rebellion against God and our pursuit of our own desires, we're actually leading ourselves to destruction. When I let desire control my heart, I'm on the path of destruction. Now, I want to make sure that we're clear that desire in itself is not what produces the destruction. God has given us good, godly desires. It's when I let that desire have control of me. It's when I let that desire replace God in my life that it leads to destruction. When I submit that desire to God, then I'm looking, living in a balanced, healthy life where God can use that desire to produce something great. So some people have desire to, to do really well financially. Now when we let that desire control our hearts, what do we become? We become selfish? Too concerned about finances? We don't know how to give? And those finances begin to control our hearts and we have all met someone that was incredibly wealthy and incredibly bitter and grumpy. But man, they were doing well financially. Now, when you say, God, I'm going to submit this desire in my heart to you, then he uses that desire to glorify him. And some of the greatest, most generous people, some of the best givers I've ever met, they could do that because they had this desire to be financially responsible, and yet they submitted it to God. And so God used that desire to build a great portfolio and then to glorify him with it. So you see how we have desires. If we let those desires control our heart, then we're committing or harlotry with the prostitute. That's one of the seduction techniques. Now, it was the city and the tower. The city represents economic freedom. You don't need God for anything. You can, do, you can, you can be totally self-sustaining. In America today, I think we really struggle with that. It just comes natural to us because we have a city that is so economically great. So we don't need to wait on God for something. We don't need to wait and see if this is what God would have me spend my money on. I can just go out and buy it. I don't need to depend on God for my clothing. I don't need to depend on God for my food. I can just go get it. I've got a grocery store. Not realizing that the only reason why we are blessed is because God has allowed it. The, the trick is, Everything you go to the store to buy, it, you're still dependent on God for. Everything you have is really a gift from God. It's not you that have earned it. It is a gift from God. Even if you've worked from it for it, it's still a gift from God. And we need to recognize that. So those are the two, two uh, seduction techniques that the prostitute has. It's one, throw off the shackles of God's moral authority and follow your heart's desire. And two is, you can be totally self-sufficient and independent of God. Those are the two seduction techniques of the great prostitute. And we can see how easily we buy into it. 
So that's the great prostitute, and she is seated on many waters. Now, in old te- or in antiquity, to be seated on something showed control over it. So when you sit on a horse, you better be in control of that horse, right? Have you ever seen a video of someone who sat on a horse and was not in control of that horse? I have. It doesn't end well. I've sat on a horse and, I, I, you know, I didn't feel like I was in control, but the person holding the reins was in control, so that made me feel much better. I wouldn't get on a horse if that person wasn't holding the reins. I'm not good with horses. But that's the whole idea behind seated. So, and we'll find out later on that those many waters represents all people who have bought into the world system. So all people who have bought into the world system are being controlled by Babylon the Great, the great prostitute, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. So the kings of the earth are the world's leaders, and they have committed this sexual immorality. Now this is symbolic for idolatry. Uh, I don't think that this is, well, no, let me pull back. I think this is both literal and, and figurative. It is both a literal sexual immorality that is, that is also symbolic. They have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of, those, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth... Now remember, throughout the Revelation, dwellers of the earth, uh, I've been calling it earth dwellers, and that represents all those who have not put their faith in Christ. So you either belong to one of two systems. You're either an earth dweller that belongs to the world system, or you belong to Jesus Christ, and you uh, live in His grace. So uh, those who have, the earth dwellers have become drunk. To become drunk means to be influenced by an outside force. So these people have lost their ability to see God's created order. They are drunk with the world's system. They don't even recognize the world's order anymore. So when we think about science, science was created by a bunch of believers because they, they before these believers came along and said, well, God created this world, so there must be some design behind it all. So let's study that design. Before that, it was thought that the world was just kind of chaotic, that things just kind of happened. So these believers came along and they started to study science. Now, science has developed over the years, but it is just a study of God's created order. That's what science, in all honesty, really is. But these Earth dwellers who have rejected God have lost the ability to fully understand science. And it is a rejection and a rebellion against God's created order. So we can sit here and we can argue till our faces turn blue scientifically on why you can't call a guy a girl, on why a man shouldn't be able to compete in female athletics. We can make that argument all day long and it will fall on deaf ears to those who are in rebellion against God's created order. Sometimes we make the wrong arguments. We try to get the culture around us to be morally correct. And I think it is important. I think, well, we'll get into it a little bit more later on, but I think it is, it, it is important that we make these arguments, but we should also recognize that if you're living in rebellion against God's created order, that these arguments aren't going to fall on ears that are willing to listen. The more important thing we need to discuss with people who are in rebellion against God is the gospel. 
And we need to understand that until they fully understand the gospel, they're never truly going to understand God's created order. The most important thing we can discuss isn't whether a man is a woman. I mean, it's an important thing. But the most important thing is the gospel. Because until they get the gospel, they'll never understand why we say a man can't be a woman. So, they've become drunk. They've got outside influences. They don't understand God's created order. And he carried me away into the Spirit. That's where we get that this is a new vision. Because he's being carried away once again. So in each one of the visions, he'll be carried away in the Spirit. So we see that this is a new vision. Into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now once again, she's, uh, later on we'll see her described as the beast carrying her. So this world system that the, that the earth dwellers have become drunk by are being carried and sitting on the beast that was full of blasphemous names. The blasphemous names is simply a claim to be God. So when Jesus uh, says, when the Pharisees ask him if he is the Messiah and he says, I am, they recognize that as a blasphemy. They recognize that as him claiming to be God. So they pick up stones to stone him. So that's what a blasphemy is here. The blasphemy is that he's claiming to be God. In Jesus' case, it wasn't really blasphemy. It was the truth. In this case, it is a lie, and it is blasphemy. So it's got blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. They'll explain that in a little bit. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. So this description here is a description of luxury, and this is part of the seduction technique. So if you follow us to our city and our tower, if you throw off the shackles of God's moral authority and you just pursue whatever your heart desires, you can live in luxury like the rest of the earth dwellers. That's the idea here. And it is very seductive. Not many people want to live in poverty. Not very many people raised their hand and said, sign me up for that. Most of us want to live in comfort. And we see luxury, and we say, sign me up for that. And so we can see it is a very seductive technique, that you, this promise that you can live in luxury. And this cup is full of abominations. Abominations are anything that is loathsome to God. Anything that God detests. That is an abomination. So that covers a great multitude of things. Not just abominations, but also impurities. Impurities are things that are unacceptable. So you've got, you've got an outright rebellion of abominations, but you've also got not hitting the mark correctly. So, you know, an impurity, that which is not acceptable. Sometimes I ask my kids to clean the bathroom. Have you ever asked your kid to clean the bathroom? First couple times, it might be an unacceptable cleaning, right, Terry? Yeah. I, I pointed you out because you laughed there pretty good. Yeah, yeah exactly, though, right? You've got to teach them what is acceptable. Because having an unclean bathroom is unacceptable. There's just going to be things that they miss. That's part of this, too. So there's outright rebellions against God, but it's also things that are just not acceptable. Places where you might have even tried, but you just missed the mark. 
And we need to uh, recognize that we can't hit the mark in and of ourselves. That's why we need Christ. So it's the abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So the world system seduces the earth dwellers into committing abominations, into committing impurities, and it's not just sexual immorality. It, it is sexual immorality, but this is also, and this is where I say it's figurative, but it's also literal. So it is literal sexual immoralities, but it's also figurative because it's not just that, but it's so much more. Now, I think it's important for us to think about because sexual immorality is like a thermostat for where we are with the gospel. If you really want to change the world, the gospel is what does it. When the gospel enters into a culture and infiltrates the culture, the culture then begins to change. But when the gospel starts to leave a culture, and we've seen this in Europe, we're seeing it today in America, the culture begins to change as well. And sexual immorality is a great thermostat to see where we are at with the gospel. If the gospel is thriving and alive and well in a culture, sexual immorality will be low. When the gospel is not thriving and alive and well in a culture, sexual immorality will be off the charts. So that's why I say it's a sign for all the other sins and rebellions against God. It's a thermostat for that. So we can see how the culture is doing based upon how the sexual immorality is. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. So we see that Babylon the Great is the great prostitute, and she is seducing the earth to commit abominations with her. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and of the martyrs. Ch uh, verse 6 is really uh, pictures the joy they have for killing Christians. So at some point, they're going to blame Christians, and they're going to enjoy killing Christians. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. This term marveled greatly is, uh, it really means kind of confusion and awe. He's in awe of the confusion. And the reason why he's confused is because he expected to see judgment on the, on the great prostitute, right? He didn't expect to see this great prostitute living in luxury. And since he was expecting to see the judgment and not the luxury, he's kind of confused about this. And I can see where he's coming from. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. All right, so we see that the angel is now going to explain this to us. And uh, if you're like me, you're going to be just as confused by the end of the explanation. <laughs> the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, this is in direct contrast with Jesus. If you remember throughout Revelation, Jesus is described as he who was and is and is to come until the seven bowls of wrath. And then at that point, the judgment, the wrath of God is coming. And so it's no longer is to come. He was and is. So this is in direct contrast. Now, that was, is, is to come emphasizes his internality. So he is eternal. He has been forever in the past. He is currently now, and for us at this age, he will be in the future. So it's in contrast to that, and what we see with the beast is that he was, 
And though this is not a reference to eternally forever was, he was created, but he's been around before humans and is not. Meaning he is going to die. He won't be around forever. Although Jesus is around here now, he is alive here now, the beast is not. In particular in this vision. So what I want to explain here is that this is a... a, Description of when the beast seems to have a mortal wound. So this is where reading vision 2 helps us to understand vision 3. So in vision 2, the beast has a mortal wound and then is raised or appears to be raised from the dead. That's what this is a reference to. And it's important for us to understand because the earth dwellers, those who don't believe in Christ, will marvel. They'll be in awe of the beast because he was among them, and then he dies, and then he comes back to life. And that's one of the great ways that he will deceive the world. Once again, this is a cheap imitation of Christ, because Christ was mortally wounded. He died, and he rose again and is alive to this day. However, the beast is a cheap imitation. He's a cheap knockoff, so he will die or he, he is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And so he's describing that although he's a cheap imitation of Christ, he can't do what Christ did. Though he will rise, he will go to destruction versus Christ who will go to eternal life and reign on high. And the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel. So once again, they're going to be in awe of the beast to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So they're going to be in awe of what, the, what he can do. They're going to be in awe of the deception versus what they did with Christ. Still to this day, even though I think the evidence is overwhelming that Christ historically existed, that he died, and then he rose from the dead. I remember sharing the gospel with someone once and she just looked at me and she goes, I think Mary just wanted to uh, cover up for her sexual immorality. That was her answer. Well, what do you do with the resurrection? Oh, Jesus just had a good PR department. Jesus had a horrible PR department. If your PR department gets you killed, that's a bad PR department, okay? It wasn't a PR stunt. It was a resurrection. It was he came to life. But they will be, instead, they will marvel at the beast. This calls for a mind and wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So uh, Rome was built on seven mountains, so this is a reference to Rome. Uh, They are also seven kings. And here's where, you know, there's a lot of debate. We could talk about, we could go, oftentimes I like to give like different viewpoints whenever there comes a debate. I can't give all the different viewpoints here because we would spend like the next three months on this one section. So I'm just going to say what I think it is. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has yet to come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, it was and is not and is an eighth, but belongs to the seventh and it goes to destruction. All right. So what I think is going on here is that the kings represent kingdoms. So the, the kingdoms here are First, Egypt, and then Assyria, and then Persia, no, sorry, Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece. Those are the five kingdoms that fell 
before Rome. The sixth kingdom is Rome. We are still living under the influence of Rome. So that is where this kingdom is still existing. The seventh kingdom is going to be the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then the eighth kingdom that will come out of that will be the kingdom that, is, that the Antichrist reigns. So that's what I think is going on there. Hopefully I didn't talk too fast for some of you that are taking notes. But that's what I think is going on there. So the beast, it's going to ha- be there for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And then it will go to destruction. And then we'll get a little bit of a description of that. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So this is a reference to what we would call client kings. So a great example of a client king is Herod the Great. Or King Herod. Have you ever wondered how uh, Israel was under Rome's control? They had Caesar and yet they also had a king. That's a client king. And the client king gets his authority from the king of those kings, but he also has to answer. So it's kind of this weird thing of like, Caesar declares that Herod can be king, and yet King Herod has to do the will of Caesar. So that's what's going on there, and we see that play out with these kings. They get, they receive their power from the beast. That's how they become kings. They receive their authority from the beast. And since they receive their authority and their power from the beast, what do they do? They pledge allegiance to the beast. They give their loyalty to the beast. And they give all of their power right back to the beast, knowing that they're really just client kings, that they really don't have any authority other than the beast. And if for some reason they ever betray the beast, they're dead anyways. So they stick with the beast. And the ten horns that you saw, sorry, I just read that. Uh, These are of one mind. So they are a coalition. They are unified in their allegiance to to the beast and their rebellion against God. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So the beast gives them their authority and they give that authority right back to the beast in their allegiance. Essentially, they're just pawns that the beast is using to fulfill his purposes. They will make war on the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them. So this is describing Armageddon. And we see this set up for us in the sixth and seventh seal. So in the... Or in the So in the sixth bowl, they are allowed to gather to make war against God. And in the seventh bowl, there's not even a description. They just lose the war. It's almost instantaneous. So that's what's going on here. They have pledged their allegiance. They have been seduced by the city and the tower. They've been seduced by the luxury. And because they want to live with the city and the tower and the luxury, they pledge their allegiance to the beast and they go to make war in rebellion against God. But the lamb will conquer them. Notice there's not a big description on how he's going to conquer them. I think it's going to be immediate. It's just going to happen. And then they describe why the lamb conquers For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Once again, this is in contrast to the beast, who is trying to claim to be king of kings. He was, he's got all these little client kings that he is the king over. 
Historically, this would have been seen as Caesar. Caesar had client kings. They were just his pawns. So that is the system that the beast will recreate. But Jesus is the true king of kings. He is the true Lord of lords. He is the master of all in the universe. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So we see that the prostitute has control over these multitudes and languages. So that is essentially the prostitute has control over everyone that is still in the world system. She doesn't have control over believers. Essentially, it's a way of saying that you are a slave to sin until you put your faith and trust in Christ. You will be a slave to one of two systems. You will either be a slave to the world system and sin, or you will be a slave to Christ. Some of us still struggle with this. Have you ever wondered why you do the thing that you hate? Why that one thing that keeps drawing you back keeps drawing you back? It's because you're a slave to sin. And the only way to find freedom is in Christ. And then the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. So this is a description of civil war that is going to break out. Those very pawns that they were using for their war, the very thing that they claimed to love, the, the very people that they seduced, they will be, end up hating. They will detest. And they will make her desolate. So the result of their hate is desolation and naked. And it gets really descriptive. And really, we can see just how disgusting they will become. And devour her flesh and burn her with fire. This is the result. This is the end game for those who refuse Christ. That not only will they lose the war, but in the end, the very thing that seduced them will be their destruction. The very thing that seduced them will be the one that destroys them. For God has put it into their hearts. Put it into their hearts is just an, an idiom for God will use to accomplish His will. So God will use the beast and He'll use the ten kings to accomplish His will. His will is His wrath and His judgment to carry out His purpose of being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So we see it there, that the words of God will be fulfilled, that judgment will come, that God will pour out His wrath, and He will actually use the beast who has been in rebellion. He will use the ten kings as they are in rebellion to carry out His plan. And the woman that you saw is the great city. So historically, at this time, it was Rome, but it was also Babylon the Great. It was any city, it is any city, that lives in rebellion against God, that has dominion over the kings of the earth. But we see the result is a civil war. The result is destruction. The world's system is full of division. 
The world system that wants to seduce you is full of promises that are empty. And those promises always end up pitting humanity against each other. God created us in His image so that we should look at each other and we should see one another and we should even see those who are still involved in the world system as image bearers of Christ whom He loves. But the world system promises you that you will live in luxury and that others are trying to take your luxury from you. And so what you have to do is divide each other up and conquer one another so that you can live in luxury and you don't have to live by God's moral authority and you can have whatever you want. And it is a system that always ends in division and destruction. But the Word of God will live forever. And the Word of God changes our hearts And the Word of God produces unity, even when it seems like there should be no unity. The Word of God can bring together different cultures. The Word of God can bring together people with different backgrounds. The Word of God can bring us together in love and unity. And it is the only thing that we have that will conquer the world system this time. But we look forward to when Jesus comes and totally wipes off the world system altogether. Wipes it out. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does last forever. That it lasts forever and it changes our hearts. It frees us from the sin that we've been enslaved to and it creates unity within humanity. That we can see brothers and sisters in Christ that we might not share anything else in common with other than your gospel, your saving grace. That we can look at others and say, he is an image bearer of my God. And because God has commanded me, I can love him and be united together. And we pray for those who have been seduced by the world system, that they would be able to see that they have been drunk, that they have been influenced by outside forces, And we pray that they would be able to clearly hear the gospel and put their faith and trust in you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.